Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, today's guest is Ty Tabor, lead guitarist and vocalist for the Springfield, Missouri rock band, King's X. Ty and I get down to business dissecting their fan-favorite jam, Goldilocks, taken from their 1988 debut album, Out of the Silent Planet. The track is one of my favorites from the band, who I refer to as Lifers, working-class musicians who have put together an impressive 12 full-length albums over the course of their career, along with an insane touring schedule. In a common theme we've heard many times on the show, Ty talks of how the song was written in about five minutes. Their vocal harmonies are second to none, and he sheds some cool light on how they got those vocals so tight onto tape before computers and technology could fix your human imperfections. And Ty tells an incredible story about performing this song on their first U.S. tour supporting their debut album and how both the band and the audience rose to the occasion and truly made it a moment to remember. For all this and a whole lot more, stay tuned. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. What a career you guys have had. I'm not sure if you're you're familiar. Uh, I play in a band called Less Than Jake. We've been around for about 30 years going now. And uh, our bands couldn't be more different stylistically, but there's a lot of parallels with a band like yours. We're a working class band. You're a working class band. You go out there year after year. You bring the show to the fans. And uh, I just want to give the listeners a, a little bit of history here. Your first record was released uh, on March 28, 1988. Uh, it was out of the Silent Planet on an odd label at the time, Megaforce Records, which was known as a metal label. I mean, they had Anthrax and and uh, a, a lot of these different bands. But but that's when I first heard you uh, on that debut record. That was followed by Gretchen Goes to Nebraska in June of 1989, uh, featuring the MTV played video for Over My Head, awesome song, uh, and fan favorite Summerland. October 1990 saw the release of Faith, Hope, Love, which contained another Thai classic, It's Love. I, I almost picked It's Love. That's <laughs> that's my jam, uh, but uh, I, I decided to go with Goldilocks, and, and, and I'll, I'll get into that why in a moment. But uh, uh, It's Love, uh, which also garnered MTV and radio play. Uh, 1992 brought King's X, the self-titled record by the band, and first for Atlantic Records. Uh, in 1994, Dogman was released to critical acclaim, and the band appeared at Woodstock. 94 and from there the band released seven more full-length albums and from what i understand a brand new album has been recorded and will be released shortly is that correct yeah it's um in the uh mastering phases right now and the 
last few little tweaks on the mix, but it's almost finished now. And I know you're aware of this. And again, this is just for the listeners. And I, and I, as a fan, I love your band. I'm going to try to tread lightly here. I don't want, I don't mean it uh, condescending at all, but I don't think there was a more difficult band, maybe Fishbone. They were kind of hard to, I don't, I don't know how I would have marketed you guys in the eighties. I mean, here you were on Megaforce. <laughs> you were playing this thinking man's just insane rock music these different time signatures the level of musicianship is through the roof and uh you know here you had yourself that you just kind of look straight laced you weren't wearing makeup with the huge you know <laughs> hair glammed out and, and jerry uh, gaskell your drummer who's amazing he, he had kind of more the hippie vibe and then you had doug you had this african-american guy with this mohawk skinny as a rail and um <laughs> it's just uh again working class band the fans and the uh, that, that love you and 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 know you that they know and 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 they get it. So, again, I I chose Goldilocks today. I was telling my producer Chris before we, we hopped on here that there's maybe ten songs in my whole life, and I don't know why uh, Goldilocks. There's, I, I know why other songs uh, they hit me because they remind me of things. I, Goldilocks doesn't particularly remind me of something, but uh, it it makes me cry when I listen to it. And that's kind of hard to admit. <laughs> um, and if, if I'd love my listeners to go look at live videos, uh, actually search Brian Powers, B-R-Y-A-N Powers, his, his YouTube video. He's done some of this song in particular where you guys just let the audience sing the whole song. Yeah. It absolutely gives me chills. It's incredible. And I'm going to hush here for a second. I, I just want to ask you. Uh, do you remember where you were at when you wrote Goldilocks? Was this pre the first record or was it while writing the, you know, writing for the first record? It was way before the first record, a few years before. Uh, it was, I think I wrote Goldilocks in around 85, 1985 or so. What happened was um, we as a band got hired by this artist named Morgan Cryer, or actually we were hired by his record company, Star Song Records to um, tour with him for over a year and help him write music for an album. So we as a band were living in Springfield, Missouri at the time, which, uh, yeah, from 80 to 85, we lived in Springfield, 1980s when we first got together. And um, we moved from Springfield uh, to Houston at that point when we got offered this uh, chance to help out this other artist, Morgan. And what we would get in return was, uh, this was back in the days, you probably remember, when clubs didn't have sound and lights. Uh, they just had a stage, and whatever band came in had to bring their own full show, sound, lights, everything. And uh, so this was in those days. And we had a, a pretty good light system and a pretty good sound system, one of the best for any band touring around the Midwest, actually. So we had some debt you know, for the show. And uh, so what happened is when we went down to uh, Houston to start recording with this, this, this guy, Morgan, uh, who, by the way, is a super nice guy, very talented musician, very good singer, writer himself. Anyway, so we go down there and um, I uh, basically uh, started, we got hired by them. So we get, we were on a paycheck. And for the first time in a long time, we had a lot of time just sitting around waiting to go do a show here or there with him. 
in the meantime, we're just kind of writing music with him. So we're just sitting around for most of the year and getting paid. So at this point, I got myself a new four track and uh, just started writing music daily, coming up with stuff, uh, just trying to come up with stuff that was different. And part of what inspired it was that this record label was wanting me to write hits for Morgan, which which I did. I I wrote uh, almost all the music on his album and three of the songs became uh, got really good airplay and two of them became pretty big hits in that world. I was just coming off of that, you know, writing this stuff for him and having time in the meantime to go back to my apartment and just write music on my own. And because they were wanting me to write commercial stuff, whenever I got back to my own place and started recording, I, I wanted to do anything but that. I wanted to write things that were different. Uh-huh. Right, things that weren't uh, exact formula and weren't something we've all heard a million times. It's okay if it's familiar, you know what I mean? Everything's familiar in some way. We all get it from the Beatles or somebody. Were you called King's X at this point, or was this Sneak Preview? Or I know Doug was part of that. Were you were you part of Sneak Preview, the previous band? That, that we were actually the... called Sneak Preview at this time. Okay. Yes. Okay. And um, so King's X didn't even happen till the very end of that situation recording with Morgan but it just gave us time to be sitting around recording and getting paid so I just I invited a good friend of mine from Mississippi to come over to Houston and and hang with me for a while and he did and we wrote some stuff got really excited about it because it was really different kind of out there stuff and so he went back to Mississippi briefly and I wrote Goldilocks right at that moment and I remember going back to Mississippi just to visit and playing it for him. And he was he really loved it. At that point, I asked him, Marty Warren is his name, I asked him to come live permanently with me in Houston and let's just come up with some new music. Let's let's see what happens. And uh, that's around the time I wrote Pleiades and some other stuff. And Marty was there with me, as well as another friend, Dale Richardson, uh, from also from Mississippi. Uh, both of them were good friends of mine, both, you know, musicians, both love rock and roll. So we all three started coming up with stuff together and it was really off the wall. I'd say half of the first album came out of that stuff. And uh, a lot of the second, third album also came from that stuff. And the original arrangement of Goldilocks that you wrote and demoed on that four track, is that pretty much what ended up uh, that idea on the record? Or did it go through an evolution when you met producer Sam Taylor? Uh, we basically just learned the song. It had a, it has a couple of tweaks, slightly different than the uh, demo, but in general, it's pretty true to the original demo. You know, it like any other band, you have to play the hits. Of course, you're going to play "It's Love" probably every show, and and uh, over my head, and 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 what is it to you? about Goldilocks that, I mean, you watch those videos, like I said, it just gives you chills. What is it about this track to you? Because I know how it hits me. I told you, it brings me to tears when I listen to it. What is it about this track? I think it's somewhat naive and innocent, and everybody can remember feeling like that at some point in life, you know? And uh, Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of pure like that. It's from an innocent perspective of 
I don't know how to put it into words. That's why I write songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, it's kind of a. T- I've been asked a similar question. It's kind of tough to explain that, but um, I think a lot of it is 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 Doug's vocal delivery on the track. I mean, uh, he could he could sing the telephone book, and it just it it, it sound it sounds amazing. But uh, you know, it, again, there's something about this track that's just kind of mesmerizing. We'll get into the song now. It's it's four minutes and forty one seconds. And this is kind of a running theme on the show. Um, a lot of times when, when songs get over the three, four minute mark, if they're not a great song, they'll kind of drag. And and this one just, it doesn't feel like it's almost five minutes long. I feel that way about it too. Matter of fact, now that you say that it's four minutes and something, I had no idea it was that long. I I think <laughs> of it as a shorter song than that. Yeah. So yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. especially at the tempo of it because it's like 120 uh, beats per minute or something i mean if you have time it's down to like 64 or whatever i mean it's it's pretty slow and and almost sludgy in parts you know but it doesn't feel like it drags there's just there's a there's just an absolute groove there and of course this track was recorded before any computers pro tools this was all to tape and uh you can just tell you guys were a damn good band. I mean, you you went in, I imagine, and cut a lot of these tracks live, right? The basic tracks? I'd say most of the basic tracks are live. Uh, yes, we always want to play it as a band and get a good take and uh, then go from there. Yeah, that's that's so important. It's, uh, it's something I feel is lost on a lot of bands these days. It's even lost on... My band, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go put a record together, and it's like now we got to learn the song. You know, back yeah. in the day, you, back in the day, you were <laughs> you'd rehearse the song together, and then you'd record it, and you knew how to play the damn thing. Well, that's interesting you say that because for us, it, it's still a little bit of both. We would we would learn the music at one time together, and then lay it down and play it, and then we would learn the vocals separately. And by the time we record it, and then have to go out live. It would be, you know, like, for instance, you mentioned It's Love. How do you we, sing and play that? <laughs> we had never we had never played and sang it together at the same time ever. You know, we we, can't, we like you said, rehearsed the music, laid it down, rehearsed the vocals, laid that down. And then it was like, oh, man, we got to do this live somehow. Um, really didn't know how I was going to because the vocals are like a different rhythm than what the guitar is playing. So everything is, you know, you got to separate parts of your brain and let them go off by themselves and then somehow keep it together. So it took me a while to, to be able to do that one. And believe it or not, that was our biggest hit, the biggest radio chart song we ever had. But we don't play it live because it's too difficult. And I believe it because, you know, I've done uh, some stuff before uh, where I've written it and been like, oh, this is, a, this is cool. And then you go to sing it and you're like, how am I going to do that? My brain can't uh, go back and forth. And I can see that it's love, the, just the rhythms in that song and how where your vocal is, is swinging back and forth. It would be very difficult to sing. It, it was and uh, still is. And it's hard for us to do it and keep, get the harmonies good. For one thing, you know, that was, I don't know what, 30 something years ago. And and we all could sing higher back then. And now there's no chance we could do that song unless we did it in a low key or something. Right. Which speaking of something else I wanted, I wanted to mention, and we'll get into the song is 
uh, a couple things. Um, I had read some stuff that, that, you know, looking back and, and I can attest to this with my first albums and projects. So I was learning and maybe we didn't have the right producer, but looking back, you're, you're not too happy, uh, with the, with the Sonics, the production of, of this record and this song in particular. Um, I know you guys had done a re-recording of it where you had dropped, uh, the key of it. And I did like that version of it. Um, but there's something about this one that, that, that I'm still drawn to. I, I agree. I, I, there's really no reason for the only reason we redid it was that we had someone working with us who was very insistent about it. And we just said, OK, what the heck, we'll do it. But I'm the same way. I don't I've never listened to the second version. Um, matter yeah. of fact, I forgot about it until you mentioned it. it it's like <laughs> it doesn't even exist to me. You know? Yeah, I, I uh, it, it was good. But man, there's something about this that, that just hits me a certain way. And looking back. The Sonics on this, the only critique that I would have, and I think it's perfect for this and that I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it, but there's, there's a little bit of 80s reverb on the snare drum on this track, you know, (laughs) a little bit, but besides that, the Sonics, like, you know, again, the song's four minutes and 41 seconds. It starts with this haunting arpeggiated guitar in the key of B that goes on for 15 seconds. And it's just, it just sets this mood. And then at the 15 second mark, uh, the rest of the band jumps in, goes for about 30 seconds. We're already at 42 seconds now when the first verse starts. And uh, I'm going to read these lyrics on the first verse and I'm going to have you set them up for us. I can't believe summer's almost here. I made it through another year, even if alone. But there's no tears in my eyes. Life is still full of surprise. I'm not looking for a one-night stand. Uh, and before you set it up, on the second line, after you say, if alone, or Doug, Doug sings, if alone, there's this this descending little guitar part there that is just awesome. Even if alone But there's no tears in my Life is still I love it. It's just so hook, so hooky. So uh, what's going on with these lyrics? I'll be honest with you. This song was one of the songs I wrote the fastest of anything I've written in my life. It just fell in my lap. Uh, the lyrics and everything were in a matter of maybe 10 minutes. And uh, the whole story was I was, you know, earlier I was talking about my friend Marty who had come over to Houston to write music with me. And we used to go to this club called Cardi's which is a really big club in Houston. I mean, it would hold a couple thousand people. And um, we used to see a lot of really good shows there. And, but, you know, we would go there on just regular nights when, when they would have locals playing or whatever. And I think one of those nights we went to see somebody like Pantera back when they were, you know, doing lover boy and wearing spandex and stuff. (laughs) And uh, we were all doing the same clubs, you know, at that time. And, uh, so anyway, we I was just hanging out and watching them, I believe. And there was this girl who I'd, I'd been in this place a thousand times. And this girl walked by me I'd never seen before with these golden curly locks, you know, her hair really long and just stunning and beautiful, beautiful girl. And I was like, who the heck is that? Where did she come from? And uh and I just remember sitting there thinking, wow, I wish I had the guts to go up and say, hey, or something. But, you know, in a club scene, it's just all 
pick up BS and stuff. And I just like, well, this is not the place. I'm not going to worry about it. And I never saw her again, never thought about it again until I was writing that, that song, the music. And uh, just the thought of that night and that happening came to mind and the lyrics just fell into my lap. And there it was just a song about what really happened. Man, I, I can't say how many times uh, I've, I've heard that on the show. Uh, we're, we're a year into this, and I, all the seems like all the best songs are just written. Lightning strikes in that bottle, and boom, it just happens. You don't belabor over it, and, and that's, that's cool, of, cool of you to say that. So you never saw her again? Never. <laughs> we got to find her, man. We got to go on America's <laughs> Most Wanted or something. She's out there. <laughs> I don't know if she looks that good anymore, but <laughs> yeah, who knows? I'm good now, but uh, but yeah, back then I was intrigued for sure. <laughs> okay, so 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 this uh, woman you never saw again. She was the was the inspiration, and that was the title. I always wondered what Goldilocks meant. So that that's her hair. Cool. That was it. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. And the lyrics you said you wrote them just quickly. Were the lyrics written first or the music, or did you just do it together when you were doing that four-track demo? It's music first most of the time for me, and I might have one or two phrases of lyrics that come along while I'm making up the music, and that kind of gives me an idea of what the song should be about, and then I sort of make things fit that is is the general way I do it. Um, On this one, I came up with the music, and I was just thinking real Beatle-ish and John Lennon-y, and like the original demo that I did, it's all John Lennon vocals, you know, more, even more Beatleish on the lead vocal and stuff. And so I was just thinking real Beatley with a lot of harmonies and stuff. And I had no idea what I was going to write about. It just popped into my mind because I think it was like, you know, just a few nights earlier that I had seen that girl and I just started writing about that. You know. That is cool. Well, um, Doug Pinnock, the bass player, sings this track, and the, we were talking about It's Love a little bit ago, um, and Ty sings that track, and you really, you have three vocalists in the band. The harmonies are just insane. Your, your drummer, uh, Jerry, also sings, so yeah. um, it, it's cool to have the dual vocalist thing. I have that in, in my band, so I can relate, and, and it's nice. You don't have to sing the whole set by yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I don't sing a lot of the songs I write, uh, and that's good with me. Matter of fact, uh, last few tours out, I, I'm not really singing lead on anything, and I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and it's cool that you say that because our bass player and I, uh, we write the majority of, of the songs in our band, and uh, well, and our, our sax player writes too, and it just depends on you know whose voice the song suits uh, the best. Yeah. That's how that's how we sometimes our bass player is like he starts singing is like. I don't know. And, and this might be after we've had the song for three, four, five months. He's like, dude, get in, get in the vocal booth. And I'll go in and see. He's like, you're singing the verses. Like, out of nowhere. It's just like, right. it happens that quickly, which is interesting. Hey, everybody, don't you dare go anywhere. There's lots more Chris to make a podcast after these messages from our sponsors. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And now, back to the show. But yeah, I love in the verse that that descending little guitar riff, that little hook that you have, the that I just that part is uh, is so good. Getting into pre-chorus number one, uh, I stand behind you and I watch you from a mile away, wishing you could be the one, but not here this way. Uh, and the guitar riff here is killer. It just changes. Stand behind you and I watch you from a mile. That lyric there, wishing you could be the one, but not here this way. What what are you saying there? I think that's what I was referring to earlier when I was just talking about it. It's just a bar scene. Ah. And uh, it would be great to run into her somewhere else. You know, it just, uh, the whole bar scene is just, I, I don't dig. I, go, I would go there to see music, you know, not, yeah, I, I didn't go there to meet people. So it was just kind of that kind of thing, you know. Again, Choruses will happen sometimes 40 seconds, 50 seconds, a minute in on a song. We're at a minute and a half, and you hit the first chorus. The simplicity here is what is golden. The chorus is, I got to know your name. I must know who you are. Yeah. And the harmonies are only in, and you guys can harmonize amazing. And I've heard you have other songs where you harmonize through the songs. The only harmonies are on the word I, on the first line, on the second line, I, and on the yes. But man, they just chill inducing they are so good do you remember why it was just on those parts and was there any ever thought of having any harmonies in the verses or anywhere else in the chorus i'll be honest it like i said it just fell in my lap and i didn't even question i just knew where i should where it should be big harmonies and where where it shouldn't it just seemed obvious to me uh just not like not that way for me most of the time um the only other song I ever wrote faster than Goldilocks in my life is the biggest hit of my life, which is It's Love. And it's another one where I wish I could remember how that song came together so intricately because it just fell in my lap. And the same thing with Goldilocks. I mean, all those parts and harmonies, I just heard them and they were set in stone before I even had the lyrics. You know, it was just this is how it must be is how I felt and didn't question it. And um I've never really thought about it. Was Sam Taylor your like an ANR person or someone at the label? Uh, no disrespect to him, I couldn't find much about him outside of you guys. And um, and and what did he bring to the table, if you can recall, to this track? 
Well, he didn't have anything to do with the writing of the music in any way. Yeah. But um, he, the, I, the thing that I'd give credit to Sam most for is that he was someone who had just been working, you know, he had been working with ZZ Top for years and he knew how professionals worked. He knew the hours they put in and how, what needed to be done to do things right. And um, so Sam made us become a professional band that clocked in every day and for, and worked for eight hours like a job. Uh, we take a lunch break and then go back in. But if we were working on Goldilocks, we may work on it for eight hours and on those harmonies and, and uh, breathing techniques and all that kind of stuff. He tried, he brought the professionalism to it. Uh, the song was there, uh, but he brought the, us, getting our chops up and being pro about making it right. You know? Well, it sounds like he was cracking the whip. And as a young band, you need that. I mean, yes. you guys are obviously players. You can just hear that from the first record. You guys are, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go as far to say as, is, is, you know, virtuosos in some regard, but you needed that person. You were young to be like, no, this is how you do it. This is work. This isn't you just show up and do one or two takes and go back to the bar and hang out with the Pantera guys. This is the, the real deal. You're, you're working here. So it's really cool for, for you to, to credit him with that. And remember, uh, this was before Pro Tools. You you weren't tuning vocals or fixing vocals, and the That's vocals right. are immaculate on this. So there must have been some some takes involved here to get these harmonies locked. Uh, the truth is, by the time we get into the studio, we knock that stuff out in one or two takes, no problem. That's always floored everybody we work with. They don't understand that. We come in, and they hit record, and we play it once or twice and go, yeah, that's it. Let's move on. And they'd be like, what? You know, and... I mean, Michael, Michael Wagner was floored by that with us because the record, actual recording took the least amount of time. It's the working on things before you do it that takes all the time. I mean, like I said, we would spend eight hours on a song, you know, yeah. one day until we were about ready to quit being a band. You know, <laughs> hating that song. That's remarkable, though, about your harmonies, because that usually is the one thing that takes bands. I mean, you, I know you guys were good, but to really get those things locked, that might take you a couple years to get seasoned. The music seems to always come quicker, at least it did with me, you know, getting locked with the drummer or the bass player, but the vocals and the harmonies, that's what takes. And, and the fact that, that uh, you guys were that good and you were knocking it out that early uh, in your career uh, is awesome. Well, I think it's the only way we could have made those records because there's so many intricate vocal things on the first couple of albums with no pro tools, you know, no moving things around digitally on the screen. It is all tape. It's all real. Yeah. It did take that kind of work to be able to go in and perform it and it be on, you know, but it was, I mean, we were ready when we went in. So we just yeah. kind of knocked it out. That's awesome. Well, we get into uh, verse number two. Uh, the lyric is, I look at you and I know who you are. You're just a little bit too far from my home. And that descending guitar riff happens. Love it. But please don't get me wrong, even though it has been long. I hope I never sing my last song without someone. <laughs> well, you know, I needed a second verse and there wasn't really much more to the story. <laughs> you know, other than... You know, I saw this girl, <laughs> but I guess what I was trying to say is, well, the line here, you're, you're just a little bit too far from my home, like my, where I feel at home. I'm, I'm in the bar. I don't want to, I don't want to pick you up here. That's exactly what I was saying. It's just, okay. and the, I know who you are. It, it, 
she looked like somebody in the bar who was probably going to get picked up that day, that night. And um, so I was just saying, I, I know why you're here or whatever, but that's not why I'm here. And I wish it was different circumstances and you were someone nice to meet, you know what I mean? Kind of a thing, uh-huh. and, but just leave it the hell alone, you know? Right. Well, again, I think that, um, and, and I don't mean this, the, the song's not simplistic from a musical standpoint, but just the lyrics, you know, we get into uh, pre-chorus number two here, and it's the same as pre-chorus number one, and the choruses are all the same. It never changes. And that's why I think that this song resonates so hard with your fans, because they can all sing it. They don't have to go, oh, here's the third chorus. Here's where it doubles and it, and it changes a, a word here. I mean, it's just they know it, you know. Was there ever any talk with producer Sam Taylor, yourself or the other guys in the band about, you know what, this, you know, third pre-chorus or second or chorus here, we should we should change a lyric or, or should we keep it the same? Uh, we never discussed it on that one. I think everybody heard the song, liked it a lot. And we just decided to keep it as is. And, you know, we're known for dissecting all the songs terribly. I mean, every little word, everything on, on, on everything we did. But I really don't remember us tearing this one apart. It was just a matter of we like this one. Let's learn it. Yeah, and and I talk about that on the show a lot. It's just the simplicity, uh, you know, some of the old rock and roll tunes, "Twist and Shout," "Louie Louie." They're they're so over the head simple, but that's why they're hits. You know, yeah. the, the 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 hook and uh, the the hooks here. I mean, this this pre-chorus is is you know almost like a a chorus before a chorus. It's so catchy in and of itself. And the same lyric as the first time. I stand behind you and I watch you from a mile away, wishing you could be the one, but not here this way. And we go into chorus two. Um, I got to know your name and I must know who you are. Yeah. And uh, again, the harmonies are on both uh, the word I uh, and on the on the yeah at the end. And I almost feel and, and I hadn't really thought about this before that that if you had harmonies other other places in this song it would take away from the impact and the power that those those have in those specific places. I think that's how we were feeling because we were not afraid to put harmonies on things for sure. And, you know, as oh you, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we all felt that too that it was just in the right places and it kind of had more impact like that. We're now at the uh, three minute mark and the guitar solo actually starts in the tail end of the chorus for like two measures. Um, It's almost like a measure and a half. It's kind of weird. It gets weird there for a second. Mm -hmm. And then uh, eight seconds later, the guitar solo is played behind those pre-chorus chords. chorus is going now and you're you're now your solo is coming and the solo is interesting because it takes you to a different place completely uh, was this how do you write solos for this particular song is that just off the floor or did, did you rehearse this and have it have it written out or how how'd you come up with this one um the large majority of of solos i do are are first or second takes and just leaving it doing whatever i would have felt live and just leave it that's remarkable to me because i you know i'm not really a solo player i do riffs and stuff in my band and that 
when I hear a player is doing that, I go, that's just what I felt. And that's like the first or second take is what, what gets kept. It's just, that just uh, is so cool to me. I'd never think about solos. And I, I, I did a video about that recently on my page. I got a Patreon channel where people ask me about those type of things regularly. And I never think about solos ahead of time on purpose because almost a hundred percent of the time, if it's not captured in the first or second take, then it just starts becoming a waste of time if I get too used to the song and nothing magic's happening. So that's why I like to do solos before I'm used to it. I like to not know what I'm going to do. And it makes me a little bit scared, you know, and I act as though I'm live in front of an audience and I got to do it right, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. And um, that's the way I try to attack it. And anything I hear that's past those first couple of solos, I don't like as much. So these days I'll give it a couple shots. If I don't get it, I don't want to hear it anymore. I'll, we'll do it again in another two or three days, move on to something else, then prop it up again, just like it's brand new and don't know what I'm going to do and attack it that way again. And usually uh, I get it on at least by the second time. I think that's, like I said, so cool. Awesome. Do you recall playing the song live before you, you tracked it? Not the demo, but before, before you actually actually made the recording. Were you playing this song out in the bars and the clubs? I don't think we were. We I don't weren't. believe I don't believe we were, but we we may have been. We may have been, but I don't remember that. It was okay. one of the earliest songs we learned. Right. Uh, when we went from that era when we started doing becoming King's Eggs, you know. Gotcha. Well the, the guitar solo uh went from uh basically three minutes uh, to the three minute and 24 seconds. So 24 second guitar solo, which is now the bridge, uh, which the bridge is just the, the verse chords um, and uh, verse chords and feel. And it comes in with some sporadic vocals and harmonies, like some I like that from the chorus. And that's kind of harking back to that. that whole part come about it's, it's it's really interesting there's some cool delay going on with the vocals i just did that on the demo and we tried to we just replicated it i wanted it to be a beetle middle section almost like a day in the life with john lennon ah, you know kind of a feel yeah Where it's not really a vocal but just a vocal part and i just saw that section as being one of those just a vocal part without i mean it does actually say some words it says who you are and so there are a few words coming through but it's mostly meant to be a psychedelic vocal part you know because it's actually the chorus that we're singing on top of but we're playing it different we're playing mm -hmm. it more legato more you know it's all connecting more uh, than a normal course and played real low, real mm -hmm. subtle. And so that was just a, you know, something we replicated from the, the demo. So there really wasn't any thought of like, you know what, this is a, a bridge. We need to take it somewhere. This is our departure. We're going to write some lyrics. You were approaching it more of like, like this Beatles kind of atmospheric part. Yeah. I just, yeah. I wanted it to just go into psychedelia for a moment. Okay. But, but okay. with vocal, letting vocals do the trip, you know? Yeah. Well, coming out of it is very interesting. It has this like 
crazy out of nowhere, like just this snare hit. And then you're into pre-chorus number three. It's kind of jarring, you know, and uh, I love uh, pre-chorus number three, same lyrics, but uh, the first line, I stand behind you and I watch you from a mile away. Second line, I'm wishing you could be the one, but not here this way. And Doug does this spirited whoa at the end of that one. On that second line, he changes the melody. He goes up there, which just lifts that part. I'm wishing you could be. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's it's that the lyrics the same, but it's that little change that you just it lifts that last chorus. I know it's been uh, 30 plus years. Do you recall talking about that or or, or wanting him to go up there? Uh, We don't usually discuss anything like that. That's just just a vocal moment. What came out of him, you know, what he felt and uh, where he went with it. And it was perfect. You know, Uh, we don't. We don't usually sit around doing that, you know, like, hey, you know, that third word on 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 the word if maybe hit, uh, you know, we don't we don't do that kind of stuff very often. Now on I will say that when we did the Mr. Bulbous album, we did a little bit of that because some of the chord progressions were just so completely left field ridiculous that what a wacky record that is oh, it's nuts <laughs> chord progressions are absolutely nuts so they coming are. up with melody on top of something that is not logical progression wise that was the whole challenge of that one so on that i would say that's the exception we worked you know on getting right notes on that that album but in in general that's never a thought uh doug feels what he sings you know and it's never the same if he does the take 50 times, we have 50 different takes. They're none are the same ever, ever. So he he just tries to express what he feels every time he does it, you know, and that's a free form thing. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I'd like to be able to tap into a little more. I'm uh, I'm our bass player. He's a, a producer in our band. So he's been producing the last couple of our records and he loves to record me vocally because I'm so easy to comp because I sing at this almost the exact same that's, every time. That's my curse. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't know which one to pick and I can't edit my own vocals. I hear every nuance and oh, I hate my voice, you know, that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I need to take a little bit of Doug's spirit and, uh, uh, you know, put that into my vocal takes. Cause man, I, I think, I don't know if it's fear or what, I just feel like I get locked in on something and I'm just going to keep hammering it till, till it's right. You know? Well, it's safe. You know, that's, that's yeah. my head. That's my headset. I, I don't have the kind of voice where when I go off, it sounds good. It just sounds like going off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we get into chorus three and what's amazing about this is that it, it doesn't double here. It doesn't triple. It doesn't, you don't you don't get a quadruple chorus. It's just this one time again. That's it. It's, I'd like to know your name, and I must know who you are. Yeah. Again, the harmonies on both words, I, and uh, and on the big yeah. Then 
then it ends on the descending uh, F sharp, G sharp minor, A, G sharp minor, F sharp, and then that big E chord at the end just just ends the tune and, and that's and that's what you get and then i'm sitting there going how'd that go by so quickly it does not seem like it's an almost five minute song yeah i, I honestly didn't realize it was like i said when you mentioned it earlier i i, I had no idea because it certainly doesn't feel like that when we're playing it either it feels like a short one yeah i guess because yeah. the ideas are simple you know the ideas are just very very simple in that song so it's not really a whole lot to think about. It's just a sing-along, you know? Yeah. Well, again, I I wrestled with uh, It's Love and, and with this track. I wrestled really hard. Uh, and, and, and maybe I'll, I'll get you on to do It's Love down the road sometime. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, man, it I, I, really, I really appreciate you coming on. Just a couple more things I, I wanted to touch on. Do you recall, you said you don't really remember playing it before, but when the record was released and you went out on that first tour and you were playing it, what was the fan response to this track? Do you remember? It was very good. And uh, I'll tell you a little story about that. Um, yeah, first two or three tours, it was a highlight in the set. You know, people really, it was it became, it became was the hit that never was, you know, that started mm -hmm. becoming one. And uh, so, yeah, what happened is we, this is how the whole audience singing thing started. Uh, we were at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. I th I'm pretty sure that's where we were. And we just had one of those catastrophic nights where all of the bass amps, including backup bass amps, blew oh. within within just a few minutes of each other. And then I think I had a, a guitar amp blow. And so we shut everything down. You know, we were about to be gearless, but we had a sold out theater of people i mean it was a massive crowd so we uh, grabbed a couple of acoustic guitars and went out to the front of the stage with a couple of stools and and jerry i don't know if what he was beating on but he was beating on something and you know, we all had vocal mics and we just uh, told everybody look we're sorry but our gear is down and we don't have a way to play so we're just going to play the whole show acoustically to you tonight and the crowd went nuts and uh, so they were singing along on most everything. When we got to Goldilocks, they were singing so loud that we couldn't sing. So we just played and let, and the crowd did it, harmonies and all. And that's when we realized that's what this song is. You know, it's uh -huh. it's that crowd moment every night. And that's what it's been for many years now. touches people man i'm telling you and uh you guys are lifers and that's why you're still doing this because there's a lot of bands that would have folded and uh not this guy I'm, I'm the same way as you man you know what my aunt blue i'm gonna at least tell uh fart jokes for an hour i'm gonna do yeah. something to entertain this crowd i'm not leaving them hanging and uh props to you guys for that but uh <laughs> i i just uh want to thank you from the bottom of my heart taking the time to to be on the show i love your band and uh anything you'd like to leave the listeners with uh what's coming up i know you got the new record uh anything solo going on which we haven't even touched on ty's got a million projects you've been involved in so yeah, yeah there's a lot going on i've got a new solo album that'll be out before the new king's x 
it's already finished and it's already gone to print. So it should be, uh, we'll be able to have a, a release date here real soon, I, I would think. Uh, and then, you know, the new King's X will be our first album. And uh, by the time it comes out, it'll be about 13, 14 years since our last one. And right. I haven't been talking a whole lot about it because I'm almost afraid to talk about it. I'm so happy with it. It's uh, the best work we've done since we were young. And I'm extremely happy with it. So I can't wait for people to hear it. That's great. You got a title yet you could share? Uh, no, we don't. We don't. You don't. Okay. Not yet. You know, something real quick. I, As a fan, I have to ask you, how weird was that Motley Crue 94 tour with Karabi? Um, it's actually <laughs> one of the most fun tours I've ever done in my life. Was it? That's great to hear. Because I, I love the Karabi record. I love the record. I love John. I know John. I know his son. And uh, you and Typo were on it. What a weird bill. But I, you, you liked it. I, the reason I liked it is we just we got to hang out with, you know, Motley Crue a lot. And uh, and they were on stage with us literally every single night. They would stage dive during Moan Jam. They just get so excited that they had never stage dived before. And yeah. Doug was stage diving every night. So uh, Nikki Six started coming out. Uh, I believe Nikki and Tommy both, yeah, would come out every night on the side of the stage. And um, they would just uh, get over there and start getting all amped up to where they couldn't control themselves. And I remember one night, Nikki just runs out in the middle of the show and grabs the mic out of Doug's hand and goes, this is the best band in the world. And then just stage dives out into the crowd. And he was having the best time of his life. So, I mean, we, we taught them, Doug taught them to stage dive and they did it the whole tour and we're just having a blast. And we did a lot of stuff together. It was fun. The last night of the tour, you know, bands play pranks and stuff. Sure. It was, it was the ultimate, prank night ever in my life with any band ever it was just absolutely hilarious and they loved every bit of it and we got them back 10 times better than they got us <laughs> and and they loved it they died laughing the whole time the crowd didn't know what was going on like they're doing their acoustic set at one point and i walk out on stage with pizza and just start cramming it in their face you know like so tommy's like eating it like happy he just goes ahead and plays with one hand and eats his whole pizza and just stuff like that. And the crowd, no explanation to the crowd, you know, whatsoever. The crowd's just wondering, <laughs> what the heck is going on? And then somebody might come across the stage in a janitor outfit, sweeping and like moving their feet in the middle of a song. And I mean, we gave them crap the whole show and they died laughing and loved it. It was awesome. Rarely do I get fanboy and start asking questions. I had to ask you, man. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I love that tour. Right on, man. Thank you so much for uh, sitting in and ha have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody, don't touch that dial. There's plenty more Chris to Makes a Podcast after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. As we near the end of the show... Here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song via MP3 only and your bio to Band You Might Not Know 
at gmail.com. This week's featured band is Wildlife, spelled W-Y-L-D-L-I-F-E. And uh, these guys, you can find their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Here's a snippet of their song, Deathbed. and Chris. It's cool to hear you do these episodes where you've been a fan of the song for so long. I know, you know, you're a fan of most of these songs. Maybe sometimes they're new to you. Sometimes they're a song you've come about in your years of touring, but it sounds like this is a song that you've been a fan of since you were maybe Chris with a <laughs> with a, with an 80s mullet or something, maybe? Is that, <laughs> is that right? Well, kind of. You know, I was aware of King's X, but they hit me a little later, believe it or not. They hit me um, uh, probably around the mid-90s. Okay. Okay. Because I was all over ska and punk, and... I don't want to say I was getting burnt out, but I knew that there was other stuff out there. And I always knew these guys were players, uh, great musicians. And uh, I, I remember the the first record with Goldilocks on it. But yeah, I um, it kind of it kind of came a little bit later. And then just going back over the years and, and, and just discovering their whole catalog. And they're just a, a musician's band. You know, when you go to see these guys, um, it's a pretty pretty male dominated audience it's guitar nerds and drum nerds and you know musician nerds in the crowd just geeking out on their musicianship it's cool you have a lot of those bands bands out there i think rush is a good example of that very much a a band band and uh yeah from what you've told me about king's x i i remember king's x like I brought this up to you, I remember them on Beavis and Butthead, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. uh, which is awesome to be on Beavis and Butthead. That's how I knew of them, though. Once again, you you referred to them in the episode as a working class band, as lifers, as a band that people come out to see the songs, but also come out to see the musicianship and the show. And uh, yeah, they've been at it forever, and it comes across in their show. Well, yeah, and I, I didn't want to get. Uh, you know, there was other things I kind of wanted to say, but I was kind of tiptoeing around it because I know these guys have heard this uh, from their fans for sure. Like, I can't believe you guys aren't bigger. Um, but I, I did mention it to Ty that how could you market this band? You know, the 80s were just such uh, a time of glitz and glamour and, and shtick and everything else. And these were just kind of regular dudes, you know, they, they didn't put the makeup on. Uh, like I said, you got Doug, who's this, you know, uh, six foot two skinny African-American guy with a huge mohawk playing the bass. He's singing. Ty's singing sometimes. And Ty was kind of straight laced looking back then. And then you, you had their drummer, Jerry, and they just they didn't have a, a look or a gimmick. They were on Megaforce Records, which was home of bands like Anthrax. So they were mm-hmm. just kind of kind of all over the place. Yet they were picking up these tours and they were they were out selling out venues. And, and uh, but they never crossed over to the point where, you know, they were they were selling a million albums or two million albums. Well, if they would have fallen into the hair metal thing. 
maybe they wouldn't still be a band today. Now, I know there's a few of the hair metal bands still playing now, but they could have very easily just got swallowed up with that. And it sounds to me like they made the right decision if they were able to continue this long storied career. That is such a great point because that's exactly what happened to Enough's Enough. You know, they bought into the what they had to do. Donnie, when he was on the show, admitted that, uh, yeah, that was the look. Everyone was doing it. I didn't really want to do it. The rest of the guys in the band, the label, and uh, they, they teased the hair up, put on the makeup, put on the spandex and, and did the deal. And then when that was passe and was no longer in vogue, well, <laughs> they tried to tone down the image and be like the grunge guys. And it just, now we're not buying that. You, you were the guy in spandex. Well, you hearken back to the Donnie V Enough's Enough episode. He also brought him up, but it was cool to hear Ty reference the fact that they were influenced by the Beatles. And dude, what I thought was pretty crazy. I, I started researching this mid conversation because I was like, whoa, that's weird to think about. So this song Goldilocks came out in 1988, but I believe he said that he actually wrote it in like 1985. Is that he correct? He wrote it in 85. Yeah, 85. Okay. So... He referenced, uh, like, for example, he referenced A Day in the Life from the Beatles, something vocally that John Lennon does on that song. That song's from 1967, and Ty's writing this song in 1985. That's only 18 years. That would be like if you or I in 2021 referenced Hey Ya by Outkast or Stacy's Mom by Fountains of Wayne <laughs> or I Believe in a Thing Called Love by The Darkness. That's only eight, 18 years in the past at that point. Uh, I don't know. Something about that just seemed like wild to me because when I think of the Beatles now, I think of them as being from 50 or 60 years ago. But at the time, it wasn't even that far in the past, you know? No, I know. And and as we get older, that, that passage of time freaks me out. I think about that sometimes, you know? Something else from this episode that I thought was interesting from a musical perspective was Ty kind of went on both sides of it because you were talking about how... Their harmonies, you know, you didn't have Pro Tools at the time. You had to really nail those harmonies. So you assumed that they had to spend some time on those harmonies in the studio. But no, he was like, no, we worked those out ahead of time and came in there and nailed them. Which to me, 100% makes sense because I'm always thinking like, yeah, man, every dollar, every minute you spend in the studio is a dollar, you know, or, or whatever, or several dollars. So it makes sense to work that out ahead of time. And I don't know whether that's why they did that or not. But then fast forward 15 minutes later in the conversation, and I would assume that he would have his guitar solos worked out. But he's like, no, I just that's just kind of on a whim. <laughs> you know, he's figuring that, those out in the moment. So it's kind of crazy to hear both sides of that. I, I mean, I kind of, I guess, naively assumed that it was their first record. They were young. They were, you know, first time working with a, you know, a, a producer who had worked with ZZ Top and uh, he was whipping them into shape and they had to spend some time on the vocals. But it, it sounds like they were completely uh, prepared uh, and to, to go in and cut, cut all those vocals. And, they, and the harmonies just are insane on this. They're, they're so good. Yeah. Once again, another story of not overthinking a song. <laughs> you know, no surprise to me when someone says, yeah, I wrote that song in 10 minutes. It's one of our most popular songs. Yeah, I just I just sat down with a guitar and, and, and banged it out real quick, you know. So once again, we can add it to the list of 40 songs so far on here that were written that way. Uh, I thought it was funny. The subject matter of the song, not not so much funny. What I thought was funny about it is thinking of like, songs I wrote when I was younger and the subject matter I could totally relate to being when I was younger. I don't know if I'm so much that way now, maybe in some ways, but being a shy person and seeing some like beautiful girl or knowing of 
some girl having talked to her once, but being, you know, not going up and talking to her and that subject matter of the song. I was like, oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I think that's another re- relatable point to the song and, and why it resonates. And but yeah, and, and I I had no idea. I, he could have told me, yeah, this was a direct reference to the nursery rhyme or, or the, you know, the, the Goldilocks, the mm-hmm. this that story of that or, or it was this. But uh, the fact that it was just some woman he saw out one night uh, with long uh, flowing golden hair and he never saw again uh, is pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool to think that she's out there. She has no idea <laughs> that there's this King's X song <laughs> about her. And I mean, she might be like, who's King's X? <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe she's at the front row every show. What do I know? Uh, I also thought it was cool that Ty brought up doing whatever you can to entertain the crowd when you have technical difficulties, because I've been there. Uh, Chris, you might remember the uh, storied Pittsburgh club no longer exists, but used to be the place to play was Club Laga in Pittsburgh and my band Punchline. uh, We played an album release show. We started to have some hype. I think we had just signed to Fueled by Ramen and we had the entire power went out. And it was like, you know, one of our biggest shows ever, headlining show at our hometown club. And we exactly what he said was we played the song unplugged and the whole crowd sang along and what could have been a disaster turned into a show that people will still talk to us about today you know and i'm sure that you've had that experience as well where it's like you make the lemonade out of the lemons and it ends up being way more special than just a normal show yep you can pick one or the other you're either a pro or you're not and speaking of being a pro chris If anyone out there has a podcast or wants to start a podcast and you want it to be as pro as Chris to make a podcast, you got to hit me up. You got to check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. That's right. Prior to meeting you, I didn't know anything about podcasting. And now I feel like I I, I know quite a bit. So uh, let's roll your ad here. Well, I don't know. Everyone has a podcast now. Well, not really. What is true is that according to Nielsen Statistics, 55% of the U.S. population, that's over 155 million people, have listened to a podcast, and 24% of the population, that's 68 million people, listen to podcasts weekly. And these numbers continue to trend upward. What's also true is that over 75% of all podcasts fade away after the first few episodes. It could be for a variety of reasons, lack of strong concept, poor production value, people not realizing how much time needs to be dedicated to it, or simply just not knowing how to get the word out about podcasts. That's where WeKnowPodcasting.com comes in. At WeKnowPodcasting.com, we have a combined 25 years of podcast experience, and we can help you achieve your podcasting goals. Whether you need help starting a new podcast or want to take your currently active podcast to the next level, we got you. From consultations to concept development, from theme music to editing, promotion, animation, graphics, you name it, and we're here to help. Don't become another failed podcast statistic. Let us guide you and help your show become a success. Check out the website at WeKnowPodcasting.com. And even if you're on the fence, don't hesitate to reach out. We're friendly guys, we're passionate about pods, and we're here to help. Well, I hope that convinced everybody out there to start a podcast immediately and hit us up at WeKnowPodcasting.com. <laughs> or if you have an existing podcast and you're like, I need to 
take this podcast to the next level, you can hit us up at weknowpodcasting.com as well. We'll, We will absolutely help you out. That's right. With Chris and Matt, you'll be in good hands. So make, make, make sure you check that out. As well as check out our VIP program called Supporting Cast. It's awesome. We give you bonus episodes each week. Bonus episodes, discounts on Chris Makes a Podcast merchandise. And on top of that, you are supporting the podcast that you love and allowing us to continue making episodes like today's episode with Ty and our entire back catalog and our entire future catalog which we have a lot of great episodes coming up it's really hard for me to keep my mouth shut about who's coming up chris but i do a good job of keeping it a secret and uh we have some amazing episodes coming up over the next few months that's right and speaking of amazing guests we can continue to get amazing guests if you will leave us a review on apple Podcasts. it takes two seconds and it helps us in securing guests it makes us look good and uh, we really appreciate it there's little stars on there and all you do is click on the fifth star (laughs) <laughs> and say that these guys make a five-star podcast. If you want to, if you want to go the extra mile and spend 20 seconds, you can even type a few sentences or a little paragraph about what you love about the podcast. So that way, when someone's perusing the world of music podcasts, they can see your review and be like, oh, this sounds pretty cool. That's right. I've always said every little bit helps, and we couldn't do it without you, the listeners. Thanks for all your support. If you haven't already, give me a follow on Instagram at Less Than Christy. I want to thank Ty Tabor from King's X for sitting in with us on the podcast today. We'll see you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.